And so, what are you sure about this morning? I suppose I could also ask what you are unsure, or maybe just a little tentative about this morning. And out of the two, which would you be more comfortable with? And which would make you feel more uneasy? The things that you're sure about, or the things that you're not? And are you sure about that? You know, I think it's safe to say that a lot of the anxiety and stress that we live with today is tied to our sense of certainty or uncertainty about a lot of different things. It could be finances, our health, relationships, things that are happening in the world around us, maybe even sometimes our own spiritual lives. Of course, some kinds of uncertainty are manufactured maybe even malicious, where untrue assertions are made and repeated over and over again until repetition gets confused as evidence. But other kinds of uncertainty actually just involve kind of a healthy, humble realization that we just don't know it all, and there's always more to learn. You know, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, even things like knowledge and prophecy are still things that we only see through a glass darkly. And so we need to remain open to growing deeper in our understanding of things, even things that we think we already know. But aside from the way that it can be weaponized or simply provide an opportunity for us to learn and grow, for many, on a much more personal level, uncertainty can also be a source of anxiety leaving us worried either because we don't know what's going to happen or maybe because we think we do. And so I guess it should not be too surprising that we often find ourselves drawn to things that give us a sense of security and certainty. Like when we can get a clear diagnosis for our symptoms or when we get unambiguous answers to our questions or guaranteed solutions to our problems and for some of us, even a detailed itinerary for our trips. We like having our lives all mapped out and neatly packaged and manageable. And of course, sometimes we like to do the same things with our spiritual life, too. We'd love it if it worked that way. The trouble is, though, as you may have discovered, life doesn't always cooperate by conforming to our preferences or our expectations. It doesn't always fit neatly into the boxes that we've created for it, so we can keep it all nice and properly sorted and organized and managed and under our control. Now, there's nothing wrong with things being well-ordered and managed and organized, mind you, but rather that sometimes in our hunger for certainty, and maybe even sometimes in our need to be in control, which we think will make us feel more secure, we can get so invested in, sometimes even obsessed with, how we explain, how we organize, how we package our lives, that we might even run the risk of actually missing significant parts of what it means to actually live our lives. And sometimes, once we think we have it all figured out, if we then become aware of new information, 
that suggests that we might need to rethink or modify or update. Not everybody always appreciates that. Sometimes people become quite distressed, even hostile. As Jesus once observed in Matthew 9:17 to some people who were struggling with similar kinds of concerns, pouring new wine into old wineskins can sometimes lead to messy outcomes and the contents getting lost in the process. It's not that certainty itself is a problem or that we can't know what is true or what is not true, but that sometimes we just need to be a bit wiser about what it is that we are the most certain about. And while we certainly do want to create boxes that have good structural integrity and that help us organize things well, especially the things that we think and believe, because those things are important, what is perhaps most important is not the packaging or not the boxes, but rather what those boxes actually hold. And even though a lot of time and energy can sometimes get invested in battles over boxes and containers, as Jesus was suggesting in his illustration, God might actually decide to surprise us at times by doing amazing things with what is inside those containers that just might require some new wineskins. Well, you know, for the past couple of weeks, we've been kind of journeying together in the book of Jonah. You know, a truly remarkable book in many ways, in which some surprising and even some seemingly unbelievable things seem to keep on happening. Things that some might describe actually as new wine in search of new wineskins. It's also a book that gives us some glimpses into a rather intriguing prophet who is given a message and a task, which in one respect, despite his reluctance to actually follow through and go to Nineveh, he seems to be quite clear and certain about. But who also, as also becomes clear as the book goes on, seems to be having some difficulty in actually understanding what the message is. Perhaps at least partially because of the struggle he is having with what it is that he is most certain about. Jonah seems to be somewhat of a conflicted prophet. As we noticed just two weeks ago, he certainly hears God calling him to Nineveh, but there are apparently other things and other voices that he was also feeling pretty certain about, and so he heads for Tarshish. As we noticed last week in chapter two, despite his belly of the fish realization that grace really could be extended even to wayward prophets like himself, a realization that impacted him enough to put him back on the right track, he wasn't so sure that it applied to people who were not like himself, as you might have noticed in his prayer about those idolaters, and as perhaps he may have been thinking about those wayward Ninevites. And because Jonah may have felt more certain about and even had been shaped by his assumptions about Nineveh and the people who lived there than he was about what was actually on God's heart and what God was actually trying to do in sending him to Nineveh, Jonah himself 
may have actually struggled with hearing and maybe even articulating clearly what it was that God wanted him to say. Which suggests that there may be times when, inspired though they may be, because of the culture a prophet is a part of, and the assumptions that are embedded in the culture that might have shaped the way that prophet thinks about life, even they may not always catch the full significance of the message they've been given, or even everything that God wanted to say through them. But of course, most importantly, whatever else is going on with the prophet Jonah in this story, what the book of Jonah also gives us is a remarkably beautiful picture of who God is and what God is about. And that's what we'd like to focus on most this morning. But in order for that picture to come into full focus, there are a couple things about the book of Jonah that are kind of helpful to know before we dive into chapter three. One of those, which I think Pastor Darren actually mentioned two weeks ago when we started the series, is that the book of Jonah actually is a collection of books in the Old Testament that we call the minor prophets. We call them the minor prophets, not because they're not as important as the major prophets, but simply because their books are shorter than the other prophets. And yet, even though Jonah is a part of that collection, he is unlike the other minor prophets in a number of important ways. For one thing, while the other minor prophets give most of their space to the message that is spoken by the prophet, in Jonah, the focus is much less on the prophecy itself and much more on Jonah's experience and the experience of the people around him, which makes it kind of a book that's somewhat unique in its class in that it intends to focus our attention in a way that is different than the other prophets do. And this is not an accident. You see, already Jonah is already starting to break the expected mold of what a prophet does in his book. What's more, those who know Hebrew much better than I do tell us that even the style and the tone of the writing of Jonah is different than that of the other minor prophets. It's also unique. You see, Jonah makes use, extensive use, of words with double meanings. He uses a lot of puns and plays on words. He even uses a bit of humor and satire and irony in getting its point across. We don't notice this when we read it in English, but if you could read it in Hebrew, it becomes very obvious that this is what the author is doing. And while there's a lot more we could say about a lot of that, the point is that Jonah, unlike the other minor prophets, intentionally sets out to get our attention at poking at our assumptions and expectations and getting us thinking in a new way. And in chapters three and four, one of the things that gets us thinking about is what it is about what we call the sure word of prophecy that is actually certain and sure. You might even say that it's a prophetic book that challenges some of our assumptions about prophecy and maybe even some of our assumptions about prophets. So Jonah is kind of different as a book. But again, most importantly, it's about the God who sends him. And that's where we want to end, ultimately end our focus. But it's with that in mind 
Though I'd like to now invite you to move with me into chapter three, where we finally get to hear the message that Jonah has been commissioned to proclaim. And so if you have your Bibles with me, or with you, you can turn with me to Jonah chapter three, and we'll see what happens as the, as the chapter unfolds. Beginning with verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. As we recall, the first time didn't go very well. So God seems to be saying, okay, Jonah, let's try this again. Let's see how it goes this time. And so in verse two, it tells us, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I have for you. Now already right here in verse two, we get our first expectation jarring kind of statement in this chapter. See, God does not say, go to the evil city of Nineveh. God does not say, go to the disobedient city of Nineveh. God doesn't even say, go to the corrupt city of Nineveh. All of which, as Pastor Darren pointed out just a few weeks ago, would have been more than appropriate designations for Nineveh. Assyria didn't always play nice with its neighbors. What God does say is go to the great city of Nineveh. And what is clear from the Hebrew words that are used here is that from God's perspective, despite all the horrible things that had gone wrong in this place, God was saying that this is a city I value. This is a city that God has hopes for. This is the great city of Nineveh. And although it takes a storm and a nauseous fish and a very patient God to get Jonah back on track, eventually we do get to what we find in verse three. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now, you know, we can only imagine what must have been going on in Jonah's head as he starts to make this journey to Nineveh. But to his credit, this time Jonah actually does make the trip. Verse three continues telling us that now Nineveh was a very large city and a visit required three days. A visit required three days. John Dibdahl in his commentary on the book of Jonah in the Bible Amplifier commentary series, which by the way is an excellent Bible commentary series. Unfortunately, it's gone out of print but you can still find copies of uh, various uh, offerings from this series if you poke around just a little bit. Very, very good material. But one of the things that John points out in this series is that what is being described here may not be that what is happening is that the city of Nineveh is so large that it takes three days to walk across it, which is the way that verse is often read. But rather what is probably being described here is an ancient Near Eastern diplomatic custom. Under this custom, when an emissary was sent with a message to the king, because of the practice of hospitality that was common in that culture, the first day was set aside as the day for your arrival. The second day was set aside as the day when you actually delivered the message. And the third day was set aside as that time when you would now be free to depart after you had delivered your message to the king. And so it would all take about three days. 
This would also help to explain why it is, as we'll notice in just a couple of verses, the king received the message and proclaimed the message so quickly. It may have been because Jonah had gone directly there as an emissary to speak to him. But however all that worked, we go ahead and we read on in verse 4 that Jonah began by going into the city and proclaiming the message. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And there it is. Eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. That's the whole message. Nahum's prophecy against Nineveh took three chapters. Jonah's takes five words. And you know, some have kind of wondered when they've looked at this, if this is something like what sometimes happens when you ask your kids to do something that they really don't want to do. You know, they do it, but they do just exactly the minimum they need to in order to get by. So even if there is some of that going on here, what, what probably is actually more likely, given the way that Jonah is actually written, is that what the author is doing is intentionally de-emphasizing what the message was so that we could spend more time on looking at how the people and how God responded to the message. It's probably also worth noticing when you look at the message that it's not given to us in the form of a direct quote of what God said. Rather, it tells us what Jonah proclaimed. And something else that's also kind of interesting here is that in the words used to record what Jonah proclaims, few though they may be, there is some, something interesting going on in the Hebrew that gives us something to think about. You see, not only can the phrase, within 40 days Nineveh will be overturned, also be translated, within 40 days Nineveh will overturn itself, which is kind of interesting, but the word translated overturn here is also one that holds counter meanings and can be translated quite differently depending on the context of the passage. It's a word that can be used not only to signify something to be destroyed, but it can also be used to signify something that's going to be delivered, which sort of changes the flavor of the passage just a little bit. And so even in the words that are being used to describe Jonah's message, there are elements of ambiguity that are intentionally being injected here, right in the middle of what Jonah and his readers expected, that mess with their ideas of exactly what this prophecy is certain about, all of which fits right in with the way that the book of Jonah purposely is trying to tamper with our expectations and our assumptions that sometimes get in the way of hearing what is actually at the heart of what God is trying to say. Because, as we will see as we read on, what is going on here is not just about Nineveh getting overturned in some way, but a lot of seemingly certain expectations getting overturned as well. Well, okay then, so what happens? Well, we read on in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. 
This notoriously evil city that had been noted for brutality and cruelty believed God. They repented. I wonder who among the first readers of this book saw that coming. They believed God and they changed. But you know, I can't even begin to tell you how many people I talk to who are absolutely certain that once some evil entity has been identified in prophecy as evil or corrupt or fallen, that they are essentially not allowed to repent. And if they do, it must be some kind of deception or trick, right? This kind of thing doesn't happen. And I suspect there were probably those on whatever the ancient Near Eastern version of Twitter or social media was at the time that would have been posting all kinds of stuff when they heard that this was happening. How Jonah shouldn't believe it. How Jonah shouldn't be deceived by the Ninevites. How Jonah shouldn't be hanging around with those kind of people in the first place. Why would God be reaching out to them anyway? Well, okay, maybe some of the common people, but certainly not the political leaders of Nineveh. There was no way that was going to happen. This offended all kinds of Jewish sensibilities. But, but here's the amazing thing in verse 6 as we continue to read. It says, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. The king didn't double down. He repented. Wow. Do you think anyone saw that coming? You can almost hear the thud of the jaws of those who first read this passage in Jonah hitting the ground in shock when they got to this part. This is not the way that evil empires respond. Once again, it's not just Nineveh that's getting overturned here, but some preconceived attitudes and expectations that insist on painting the world in terms of us and them, the good guys and the bad guys, neighbors and enemies, rather than children of the same God who are just as much in need of grace and maybe just as deserving of grace as we are. You know, there is, of course, we know, no guarantee that given the opportunity that everyone will always respond well. Leaders don't always choose to repent. Neither do large groups of people. But Nineveh did. Nineveh did. And of course, whether this kind of overturning, overturning feels more like destruction or deliverance, as that word would allow you to go either way, probably depends a lot on what's going on in the hearts of the hearers and maybe the hearts of the messengers as well. Well, let's keep reading, verse seven. Then he, the king, issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. They were serious about their repentance, according to verse 7, even to the point of making the animals participate. 
have this interesting image of animals wandering around in sackcloth covered with ashes, kind of fun from the children's story this morning. But what is also so amazing here is that in spite of how limited the king's understanding of Jonah's God actually must have been, which is also indicated in the way the Hebrew is written, whatever the problems with his theology were, it appears that on a heart level, he heard the most important part of the message, perhaps even more clearly than the prophet Jonah did. Notice what it says in verse 9. Still quoting the king. Who knows, he says. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. See what the king heard and what the Ninevites heard was the possibility of grace for them. And to what appears to be a pretty hopeless situation, the king of Nineveh's who knows question injects a certain element of uncertainty into the picture in favor of God's grace. Which you know, when you think about it, might not be too bad of a kind of uncertainty to have to live with. Not only did they hear what Jonah said, but even more importantly, they also heard what God was saying, and they responded to what they heard. God's spirit was at work in their hearts, and enough grace was able to get through the message that Jonah brought, that it found receptive soil, and hope was able to take root. And it tells us that God met them where they were. In fact, the scripture says in verse 10, when God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So what do you think about that? Good news? What Jonah prophesied clearly did not come to pass. Or did it? How is your sense of certainty doing this morning? And what is it that you are most certain about? You know, if it feels like the book of Jonah is messing with your head a bit this morning and causing you to rethink some things, whether your impulse is to embrace it or resist it, then congratulations. You are hearing it correctly. The book is doing exactly what it was written to do. How annoying it is to think that those who we have identified as our enemies, maybe even for good reasons, are still God kid, God's kids too, and are still just as entitled to God's grace as we are. Much less that we might be called by God to be the ones to let them know that. Ouch. How embarrassing to discover that despite all of our assumptions and expectations, it's sometimes the people who are not like us that sometimes hear the message more clearly than we do, even when it's coming out of our own mouths. 
And after all, wasn't it Jesus who said to us in Matthew 5, 43 to 44, apparently because we needed to hear it, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus apparently liked to challenge expectations and assumptions as well. And maybe now having looked a little bit more closely at the message of Jonah chapter three, we might better understand more of what Jesus may have been alluding to in places like Matthew 16, when he told some Jews who were trying to get them, they're trying to get him to give them a sign to prove that he was the Messiah. He said, the only sign you're gonna get from me is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus knew what he was talking about. But not only does the message of Jonah challenge the way we think about people and perhaps some of the assumptions we might have made about them that can sometimes get us into trouble, it also challenges to reflect a bit on how we view prophecy as well. Too often, we have had a tendency to frame our understanding of prophets and prophecy as if it was all about knowing the future, as if God were some kind of super psychic and so we wind up thinking that our security is found in knowing all the details about what is going to happen. But what if prophecy, as the book of Jonah seems to suggest, is not so much about portraying God as a master fortune teller who always gets all of his predictions 100%, and more about a God who cares so deeply about us that God wants us to be certain that however bad things get for us in our world, that God is still there in the midst of it, extending grace, perhaps in ways that will exceed and blow apart our expectations. Perhaps the book of Jonah provides a note of caution about allowing our sense of certainty to become more wrapped up in the details of end time scenarios and time charts and prophecies and certain ways of thinking and all the assumptions that we have made then in a sense of certainty that is grounded in who God is as revealed in Jesus and the God who is at the heart of any message that we have to share. The book of Jonah seems to suggest that because God is indeed gracious, there could be some details that might not work out exactly the way we assumed they would. Something, by the way, that Jeremiah told us we should anticipate you can read about that in chapter 18 of his book, verses 7 to 9. Because who knows? Who knows? Maybe prophecy is less about giving us an opportunity to prove who is right and more about God's desire to redeem all those who will respond, which ironically is exactly the way that God goes about proving who is right all of which really should not leave us with any kind of uncertainty about the future that should leave us feeling anything but secure. And how sad it would be to read prophecy in such a way that is so certain about how bad things will get before Jesus comes that we would miss opportunities to actually be the body of Christ in the world and work together with others to make things better while we await Jesus' return. 
how sad it would be if it allowed us or if it prevented us from seeing each other and our world, even the parts that trouble us the most, through the same eyes that God sees our world. But perhaps most importantly, what we see in chapter 3 reminds us again that the grace that we experience extended to us is intended to spill over in how we regard other people, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, no matter what the issues are they're struggling with in their lives right now. And if there is a disconnect here, it reminds us that God will keep working with us just as God worked with Jonah, not only to touch their hearts, but if we're willing to listen, maybe touch ours as well. So what do you think God wants you to be certain about? Who knows? You think God might surprise us with grace in ways that go beyond our expectations? If Jonah is any indication, that's what I think we can be most certain about. Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning that we have been invited to speak the name of Jesus. We pray that the grace that we have received might truly overflow out of us to touch the lives of others, and that you would continue to surprise us in amazing ways that break our expectations and further proclaim your glory in the world around us that we might get to be a part of that this morning is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.